Good morning. All right, I'm on there. How's everybody doing? The light, blinded by the light. How's it going up there, guys? All right. We got the junior varsity team working up there this morning. They're doing a good job. All right. Uh, so I just wanted to give you a heads up of the next couple weeks. So Daniel, we're in the book of Daniel, and uh, the end of chapter 6 is sort of the end of the first part. Daniel's sort of two parts. And the first part is, it's not really history, it's just some stories that took place over the life of Daniel and uh, his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so uh, we're going to end that, and then for the next two weeks... We're going to sort of take a little break from Daniel to give me some time to prepare for the second part of Daniel, which is basically these visions that Daniel has from God. So if you uh, can't think of anything to pray about over the next two weeks, pray for me as I tackle that, as I start looking at that. But in the next two weeks, we're going to sort of do a couple sermons leading into our missions conference. If you've ever wondered why... Why missions? Why are we involved in missions? Why does Bridges care about missions? I'm going to answer those questions for you in, in two weeks. So join us for that. And please come on the 21st, which is the week before the missions conference, but it's sort of a mini missions conference. We're going to have a special time of commissioning uh, Sherry. And many of you remember Sherry, who's away from us now and will be coming back for a short time. And then she's going to go off to Africa with Wycliffe. And so we're going to do a little commissioning for Sherry on the 21st. She served, you might, you might not have got to met her. When she was here, much of her time was spent working upstairs on the PowerPoint. So she served uh, much of the time she was here. So anyway, so that's a little heads up for the next two weeks uh, leading into our missions conference. And then beginning in September, we'll get back into Daniel chapter 7, God willing or not. Okay, just kidding. So today... We're going to continue through. We're in the second part of Daniel chapter 6, the familiar story of Daniel and the lion's den. And what we did last week and what we'll do, continue to do this week is examine the story, remembering it's the word of God, not just a story, that it was written for our benefit, written both to reveal who God is and to instruct us in living as God's children in this sinful world. So again, we'll look at the lessons Daniel, the exile from Judah to Babylon, has for Christians who are elect exiles. We're chosen by God. We're destined to dwell in His eternal kingdom. But for now, we live as His representatives in this sinful fallen world. And Daniel helps us to know how to do that. Now, last week in verses 1 through 11, Daniel provided us with four lessons even before the casting into the lion's den. And I want to begin by reviewing those lessons. We'll do that by walking through verses 12 and 13. These verses sort of repeat, uh, re remind us of what's gone before, re reinforce it. Verse 12 begins, Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction. If you don't know the story, you have no idea what they're talking about. Several things here. First, who are they? They're the villains of the story, the high officials of the Medo-Persian Empire. Second, who is this king? He is Darius the Mede, who was appointed by Cyrus, the king of Persia, to rule in Babylon after Cyrus conquered the Babylonians. And third, what is this injunction? Well, the rest of verse 12 gives us the answer to that. The high officials of the Medo-Persian Empire say, O king, Darius, did you not sign an injunction and anyone who makes that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the lion's den? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. So now we know what the injunction was. At the prompting of these high officials, if you remember from last week, King Darius signed it into law that anyone who makes a petition, anyone who prays 
to any god or man within 30 days except to the king himself would be cast into the lion's den. Now, why did the, these officials want this injunction against prayer to anyone but Darius? Did they believe Darius was worthy of this godlike honor? Uh, no. This is their solution to uh, their perceived problem of this guy named Daniel. Back in verse 3, we read, Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Daniel, who was also a high official, had served the Babylonian empire faithfully for 65 years. And after Babylon fell to Cyrus, he continued to faithfully serve Cyrus's viceroy Darius. And he was good at his job. He was so good that Darius planned to promote him to second in command over the whole kingdom. From this, we, if you remember, we got our first point from last week. As an exile living in a foreign land, to the best of his God-given abilities, Daniel served faithfully. And the lesson we learned was that as we live as exiles in this world, we are to, we are, to the best of our God-given abilities, to serve faithfully those in our world. We, like Christ, are to be servants. So Daniel served Darius faithfully and thus continued to get promoted. And both out of, it seems, jealousy and because they knew uh, Daniel was incorruptible, and so he wouldn't let them get away with anything, these high officials sought to find something wrong with him, something they could bring him down with. But if you remember in verse 4 we read, then the high officials and satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. And this was where we got our second point from last week, as an exile in a foreign land, God gave Daniel an excellent spirit, that's what we read in verse 3, that enabled him to live this faithful life, this life above reproach. He was blameless in all things. And the lesson we learned was as exiles in our world, we have, we've been reconciled to God, who through Christ has declared us to be above reproach blameless, and now by the power of his spirit, we can live above reproach. Now in verse 13, after the high officials reminded and reconfirmed the injunction against prayer, we read, then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Here we find summarized for us the Final two points of last week's message. First, even though he served faithfully, even though he lived a life beyond, above reproach, as an exile, Daniel faced opposition. Notice that the high officials make a point of Daniel's status. Even after 65 years of faithful service, he was still considered just a guy from Judah, an exile. He, didn't, he doesn't really belong here. And the lesson we learned was that no matter how good, how Christ-like we are, as elect exiles, as those who really don't belong here, this sinful world will to uh, oppose us. We will face opposition. Then second, we find our final point from last week. As an exile in a foreign land, Daniel prayed persistently. The officials again point out that he makes petitions three times a day. Daniel maintained his connection, his commitment to God by going to him thanking him and praying to him three times daily. And the lesson we learned was that as elect exiles, we too are to pray persistently. In this fallen world, we must strive to maintain our commitment and our connection to God, giving thanks to God, praying to God, trusting him to deal with the difficulties and sin in our lives and in our world. So that's a review that's the next two verses that sort of review what we learned last week, uh, lessons before the lion's den. And that brings us to verse 14, and the very brink 
of this lion's den. Here Daniel will continue to give us lessons for living as exiles in this godless uh, pagan, in his godless pagan kingdom in our world. And the first thing we find is that even in his times of trouble, uh, Daniel experienced peace from God. As Daniel faces the lion's den, the text at first does not focus on Daniel. Instead, it focuses on Darius, which is interesting. The writer, Daniel, seems to be setting up a contrast between King Darius and Daniel the exile. And in verse 14, we read, Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Darius the king is severely shaken by the fact that Daniel's going to be cast into the lion's den. Again, this points to Daniel's faithful, above reproach service to the king. Darius clearly has some affection for Daniel, and he does not want to lose his trusted servant. So he seeks for a way to rescue Daniel. Doesn't say what he does, what he's about. He's trying to rescue him from the fate of the injunction that he himself signed into law. But beginning in verse 15, we read, Then these men, these high officials, came by agreement to the king and said to the king, No, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. The high officials uh, keep up the pressure on Darius. This is the third time they've thrown the law of the Medes and the Persians into his face. Three times they've declared no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. But to be clear, that's not strictly true. Both here in Daniel 6, we'll see at the end, and in the book of Esther, if you're familiar there, where we also read the idea of the law of the Medes and the Persians that cannot be changed, the law ends up being changed by issuing a counter-injunction. That's what we'll see at the conclusion of Daniel 6. So before casting Daniel into the lion's den, it was possible for Darius to admit that he'd made a mistake in issuing this first decree. And now you can see why these high officials made sure Darius kept reaffirming this ordinance against prayer. They knew of his affection for Daniel and wanted to make sure he wouldn't reverse his decision. At this point, a a counter-injunction would have resulted in an enormous loss of face for Darius and would have cast doubt on the validity of any future decrees that he made. Well, is he going to change that one too? Do we really have to follow that one? That's surely why, at the end of the day, Darius chose to sacrifice Daniel rather than reverse his decision. That's what we find in verses 16 and 17. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, and that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. So Darius reluctantly carries out the punishment prescribed by this ill-conceived law. But notice his last words to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. This shows that, Darius, that, that Daniel's above-reproach life of faithful service has impacted Darius. And we continue to see this impact in verses 18 through 20. We read, beginning in verse 18, Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled him. Darius returned home, palace. He's safe. He's safe and sound in the walls of his palace, but he spends a sleepless, fearful night. He was unable to enjoy his usual comforts of food and diversions, whatever the diversions might be, entertainment, something else. Then at the break of day, we continue, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish, The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Notice both Darius' concern for Daniel 
and his hope that Daniel has survived because of Daniel's God. Darius has some idea about God, but no relationship with God. And when faced with a difficult situation, he's filled with fear and anxiety and stress. But what about Daniel? Beginning in verse 21, we read, Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me. Can you hear the sharp contrast between the experiences of Daniel and Darius during the night? Darius was filled with anxiety and fear for Daniel, while you can hear in Daniel's response to the king a calm, confident peace. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. Remember last week we looked at the result, uh, what, what happens to people who are persistent in prayer And I said we'd see it in Daniel. Well, here it is. Daniel is a living example of what Paul wrote to the Philippian church. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, even ravenous lions, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Daniel doesn't uh, tell us, the book of Daniel Daniel writing doesn't tell us, but I'm sure he spent the night in prayer, in fellowship with God, maybe chatting with this angel who was shutting the lion's mouth, probably cuddled up, maybe cuddled up with a lion or two. That would be cool. But whether that's true or not, it's clear from the text that contrary to anything we would expect, Daniel spent a far more peaceful night in the lion's den than Darius did in the royal palace. And what do we learn from this? That true peace does not come from the security we have or possessions we accumulate or diversions we might seek. Darius has everything his world had to offer, including, including some knowledge about God. But he had no peace. Whereas Daniel, in the midst of a great trial, had only the presence of God the favor of God with him, and he was filled with peace. The somewhat uh, simple saying that I think my wife used to have on her license plate cover proves true. No God, N-O God, no peace. No God, K-N-O-W God, no peace. So who do you relate to in this story? Daniel or Darius? Do you, like Darius, only have uh, the surface knowledge of God, maybe even a lot of knowledge about God? And therefore, but, but when faced with difficulty, you're overcome by anxiety and fear. Or do you, like Daniel, have a prayer-filled, committed relationship with the living God? And therefore, when faced with difficulty, you experience the gift of His prayer, presence and His peace. As Jesus said to his disciples, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. As Jesus teaches and Daniel exemplifies, in the world we will have, no matter who you are, there will be tribulation, there will be trouble, there will be trials and suffering. There are always people reinforced by, I believe, demonic forces, villains that want to cause you trouble. But take heart, Jesus says, have peace. I've overcome the world. The hero of the story is Jesus. He's the hero of our story. Yes, you're exiles. You must live in this sinful, fallen world. But if you know Christ, you can have peace. Because he's more powerful than kings or laws or governments or lions or anything else that this world can throw at you. Know this, as Daniel experienced peace from God in the lion's den, we too can experience peace from God in any difficulty, in any difficult circumstance of this life. So Darius, with fear in his heart, asks if God has delivered Daniel from the lion. And Daniel, with peace from God, replies, Yes, I've been delivered by my God. 
Then Daniel continues by explaining to Darius why God delivered him. First, he says two things. First, which is our second point, Daniel was delivered by his obedience to God. Now, before we look at and apply this point, I want us to understand that often the stories in the Old Testament involve outward or physical examples of what we believers experience uh, sometimes outwardly, but oftentimes spiritually. They're true stories written for our benefit to illustrate for us who God is and what God does and how we're to respond to God. Like the story, maybe the most famous story in the Old Testament, David and Goliath teaches us to trust God and to stand up to giants. The challenge in God's power to stand up to giants or the challenges of this life. And that's exactly, I think, what we have here in this, sto- in this story in Daniel 6. God physically delivered, saves Daniel from the lion's den. And I believe this is a picture of God's saving work in our lives. Daniel's deliverance from the lion's den illustrates our deliverance from sin into relationship with God. But a warning here. As we apply lessons from this or any other Old Testament story we need to be careful. We must make sure that the principles we find are consistent with the rest of God's Word. We can't just take a story and make it say what we want it to say. Especially, it has to be consistent with the direct teaching we find in the New Testament. So as we look at at what this story in Daniel teaches us, we need to reinforce that teaching with the direct teaching of God's Word. Does that make sense? Okay, back to the text. In verse 22, Daniel declares, My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Daniel confirms that, that we, what we've been saying about him all along, he lived a life that was above reproach. He was blameless before God and man. I always want to divert here and say, yeah, but he was not Jesus. He, he sinned somehow, some way. But again, unlike most every other character in the uh, Old and New Testaments, we, we, got, we got no dirt on Daniel. Nothing, there's nothing the Bible says that he did that was wrong. He lived in obedience to God. And under God, he lived in obedience to those who had authority over him. And because of that, Daniel says, God sent an angel and shut the lion's mouth. Uh, Again, because of that, because of his obedience, his blamelessness, you get to be blameless by uh, continually obeying, by the way, in case you're wondering. God sent an angel to take care of him. And what does that teach us? Well, it seems to say that being blameless before God Living in obedience to God is required to receive deliverance or salvation from God. Does that sound right? Okay. Well, didn't the Apostle Paul, direct teaching, famously write, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay. Paul clearly teaches... That our salvation is by grace, the unmerited favor, the gift of God. Not through works, any works, works of obedience, but through faith, trust in Christ alone. So maybe obedience to God, his law, was only required for salvation in the Old Testament. But now, after Christ has come, we're free to throw obedience out the window and be saved by faith alone. What do you guys say? No, maybe. This is the, that was the dispensation of the law, and now we're in the dispensation of grace, right? Makes sense. Is that what Daniel and Paul are teaching us? Some would say yes. But I don't think Daniel or Paul would agree. And to understand this, we need to continue looking at the text. We aren't leaving the idea that Daniel was delivered because of his obedience to God. But we need to include what Daniel says next. Daniel was delivered by his trust in God. Verse 23. Then the king was exceedingly glad 
You know, we're kind of skipping over Darius now, but he's, he's glad, and we'll get back to him. He has, a, he has his moment to come. And commanded that Daniel be taken out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Daniel says he was delivered unharmed because he trusted in God. Now that's more like it. Okay, we got that. We evangelicals can relate to that. That's in line with what we just read in Ephesians, right? Saved by grace through faith, through trust in God. But we must ask, why did Daniel first say that he was saved by his obedience to God and then by his trust in God? Well, could it be that Daniel needed both? He first needed to work hard and make, him, make sure he was blameless. He needed to obey in all things. And along with that, he added the, the trust. He trusted in God as well. And for us, could this mean, as some Christians, quote unquote, believe, that trusting in Jesus' death on the cross merely opens the door to salvation, makes it possible, but to enter through the door, we must do our part by living a life of obedience. Does that sound right? Can I hear a no? Okay, just, just to be clear. It shouldn't sound right, because it contradicts what we've just read in Ephesians, that our faith... That, that our faith is a gift. We don't even get to take credit for the faith we have. Read Ephesians carefully. Uh, we're given the gift of faith by God. That our salvation is not of our own doing in any respect whatsoever at all. Continue. It also contra- contradicts many other passages, including what Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes, trusts him who sent me, has eternal life. Full stop. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. It seems clear that salvation comes to those who believe, trust, have faith in God. Those who trust that through Christ... God provides a way of salvation. But what about Hebrews 5.9? New Testament, direct teaching. Speaking about Jesus, the author writes, And being made perfect, Jesus, He became the source of eternal life to all who trust in Him. That's not what it says. It says, obey Him. From this, it seems clear that Jesus saves all who obey Him. So what's the deal, Pastor? Why are you uh, trying to confuse us? Well, I don't want to confuse anyone. I do, however, want us to have a clear understanding of both why God saved Daniel from the lion's pit and, more importantly, why God saves anyone from the pit of hell. So we need to understand how, how this trust and obedience fit together. And for us to understand this, we need to begin with uh, trust or faith. We cannot obey our way into God's good graces. We cannot work our way. We cannot earn our way. We, as sinners, it's just not possible. We enter relationship with God, not by our works of obedience, but by God's grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Clear? And when we do trust in Christ... God credits the righteousness of Christ to us. God does a a work in us, a mysterious work, if you will, in our lives to make us blameless. We become righteous before God. Remember Colossians chapter 1, verse 22, we read last week, Christ has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. It's a work of Christ in our lives that we become blameless. That's a, a different way of becoming blameless. It's not obedience all the way. It's Christ's righteousness placed on you. For those who trust in Christ, Christ has made us blameless before God. But God also requires, if you will, expects, commands our continued obedience. 
John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus didn't say, Keeping my commandments means you love me. You earn my love or you show your love. He said, if you love me, if you have entered into relationship with me, if you've chosen me above all others, if I'm your greatest treasure, then you will keep my commandments. Notice that this is not a command. This is a statement of fact. Those who love Christ, that is those who have trusted in him, those who've given their lives completely to him, those who've surrendered everything to him, will keep his commandments. How? Well, to accomplish this, God does a work in our lives. When you put your trust, your faith in Christ, something actually, really, takes place within you. We're given the Holy Spirit of God who begins a work of transformation. We call it sanctification. And it's a process that we go through throughout this whole time on earth. But we, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17, are changed. We are new creatures in Christ. And part of that new creatureness, if that's a word, is the desire... The ability to live in obedience to God. Do you have a desire? Do you feel even the strength at times to live in obedience to God? That's not you. That's the work that God is doing in you. And we'll talk about if you don't have that in a moment. So obedience to God is not a, a prerequisite to salvation. Faith is. But obedience, and again, faith is a gift of God. Deal with that. But obedience is the sign, the mark that you have been saved, that your faith is real. The mark that you have received the Holy Spirit and that He's at work in your life. So trust and obedience are inseparable. If you say you trust, if you say you have faith in God, if you say you're a Christian, if you say you're a believer in Jesus Christ, but you don't obey Him, you don't consistently follow Him, you're often about your own way of life, your own thing. Monday morning, you forget about Sunday and you go on and then you come back Sunday. Then your, your trust, your faith is false. The worst thing a pastor, I think, will ever experience and, uh, is, is uh, standing before God and looking out and there's people that came to his church for years and they're going the other way. They're not there. Well, didn't you tell them? Or did you give them this false sense of security? That, hey, you just have to pray that prayer. Doesn't matter after that, you're in. Not so. Not so. If you say you trust but don't obey, then your trust, your faith is false. You should have, I'm trying to give you now, no assurance of salvation. James puts it this way, faith apart from works is dead. Faith that does not result, faith is first, you got to have faith, but real faith that will, will result in works. Faith that does not result in works of obedience is not real faith, it is dead. And real faith in Jesus Christ will result, not maybe, not kinda, it will result in works of obedience. The Holy Spirit will work in your life. He'll give you the fruits of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control and all that good stuff. You're a, you'll be a changed person. We see that if you, if you, if you uh, just finish reading in Ephesians. Sometimes we don't like to read at all. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Uh, but you also read, need to read verse 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved by grace through faith, but we are saved to something. 
Certainly we're saved to eternal life. We're saved to relationship with God. But in this life, as we live as exiles in this world, we're saved to, do, to good works, to works of obedience that God gives us to do. It's a package deal. And just to be clear, when I, when I talk about obedience to God, we, we, we do need to be, uh, let me say this, we, do, we must be blameless to uh, receive eternal life. But that blamelessness comes from Christ. And we must continue in obedience because that's the natural outflow of real faith. But again, to be clear, I'm not talking about sinless perfection. As elect exiles living in this sinful world, we're still subject to temptation and sin. We at times will fail to obey. But disobedience will not be the normal mark of our life. We may fall, but when we fall, we'll know it. We'll, the Holy Spirit will convict us. We'll regret it. We'll want something different. And God gives us the ability to overcome that. What do we do when we fail to obey? Well, God's provided for that in 1 John 1.9. The apostle writes, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession means we must come to God in repentance, uh, turning from. You can't, you can't, confession is not, Lord, uh, forgive me for this thing I did today. I know I'm going to do it tomorrow, so maybe go ahead and forgive me for that as well. You know, that, that's not it. Confession is coming to God in repentance. Lord God, I come to you and I'm committing to you and I'm asking you for the power to overcome this sin in my life. I don't want to do it again. I desire uh, to be who you've created me to be, blameless before you. To agree with God that you failed to obey his commands, trusting that he will forgive, trusting he will empower you to overcome this temptation, this sin in the future. So God's got it all covered. Let me, let me just summarize. Yes, both trust and obedience, being blameless, are required for salvation. But being blameless comes through the righteousness of Christ by grace through faith. And continuing in obedience comes by the power of God's Spirit at work in the lives of those who truly trust in Him. Let me just uh, say it one more time. If your life is a pattern of disobedience to God, I'm not saying you fail, you sin. I'm saying if, if your life is a pattern of disobedience to God, you have absolutely no assurance of salvation. Faith without works of obedience, trusting in God, living for Him is dead. Okay. That obedience comes from the power of the Spirit at work in your life. And if you're not obeying, then maybe the Spirit was never given you because you haven't really trusted in Christ. And forgiveness... And continued cleansing from unrighteousness when we're not obedient comes to those who repent and return to God and confess their sins. As the hymn says, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. And we'll get to sing that in shortly. Trust and obedience were not separated in the life of Daniel, and they're not separated in the life of any believer. So I hope that's clear, and I hope that's helpful. And if it made you uncomfortable at all, I hope you come and we can talk more about it. Now we, must, now we have to return to Daniel 6 and the aftermath of the lion's den. Daniel, who trusts and obeys the Lord, has been saved, but not so for his accusers. Verse 24, and the king commanded that those who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the lion's den. They, their children and their wives, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Okay, this certainly seems harsh to our modern ears, but according to the ESV study Bible, this was in accord with the common principle in the 
ancient Near East that anyone who made a false charge against someone else would be punished by receiving the same fate they had sought for their victim. In line with the ruthless, pra- with the ruthless practice of the Persians, the sentence was also carried out on the families of the guilty men, their children and their wives. So just to be clear, the, the Persians, that's what they did. This isn't like, oh, God killed them. The Persians did this. Now, among other things, this shows that Daniel's deliverance cannot be explained by well-fed or tame lions, right? These were wild, hungry beasts. And Daniel was delivered, not by, some, uh, not by Darius sneaking in some sickly lions, but by the power of God, and his accusers were not delivered. The Most High God holds the power. This shows us God holds the power of life and death, not earthly kings or kingdoms or laws. And upon seeing God's deliverance of Daniel, King Darius, he's learned a lot. And he makes this declaration. Beginning in verse 25, we read, Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. So I don't know... It's just talking about his kingdom, or he had special pigeons that went everywhere else. He says, peace be multiplied to you. He's learned something about peace. This Daniel guy had some. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So in response to Daniel's deliverance, King Darius issued this counter-decree, nullifying the original injunction against prayer. In this degree, he commanded fear and reverence, not for himself but for the God of Daniel, the living God who rescues and saves. Now, of course, no one can enforce devotion to God with some decree, no more than they can, uh, no more than that first decree could squelch the devotion to God of Daniel. But this decree was nevertheless a, a testimony to God's work in convincing Darius of his existence and of his great power. The Lord, as he did, if you remember back, in the uh, first four chapters of Daniel, focusing on this guy named uh, Nebuchadnezzar, as God did in Nebuchadnezzar's life, he had once again brought the ruler of the mightiest empire uh, on earth at that time to acknowledge his greatness and power, as well as the fact that his kingdom would truly last forever. Now finally, don't miss the significance of the closing note of this chapter. So, so this Daniel pro- prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Remember back to chapter 1, if you remember back. We were told at the final verse of chapter 1 that Daniel would live until the reign of Cyrus. It was, it was uh, I mean, the writer's writing at the end, so he, he knew that. This reminds us that Daniel's entire life spent in exile is sort of a metaphorical lion's den for him. Yet God preserved him alive and unharmed throughout the whole time. So uh, enabling him to prosper under these successive kings. You know, we mostly focused on Nebuchadnezzar, then we had Belshazzar, and then we had Cyrus is in there with Darius, and there were a couple others. He's, he, 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 he's uh, able to prosper until King Cyrus. And Cyrus is the one who issued the decree that the Jews would return to their homeland and rebuild Jerusalem. So, so we got the exile. They're taken out of the land, and then 70 years. And then Cyrus, the same Cyrus, he issued the decree that they could go back. And in the experience... Uh, wait, wait, wait. Now, as far as we know, Daniel, uh, Daniel didn't get to go back. As far as we know, he died there in exile... And his, his life in exile, he's probably lived about 85 years, 70 of it was in exile. The, the whole time, so the exile of Judah was 70 years, and Daniel lived that entire 70 years. And in the experiences of Daniel and his three friends, 
God demonstrated that he could keep his people safe in the midst of their enemies, that God is in control, that he's sovereign. Even in these terrible, difficult circumstances, life in exile would not be easy. You're going to get thrown to the lions. You're going to get thrown in the fiery furnace. However, through God's faithfulness, it was possible for his people to survive their exile as strangers and aliens serving the earthly empire in which they found themselves. Even while, while they looked, uh, they had a different hope. They looked for another city that was yet to come. That's what the author of Hebrews says to all elect exiles. For here we have no lasting city. For here, in this earth, we have, you and I, Daniel, have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Is that true of you? Uh, as Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. What are you seeking? Like Daniel, we too are strangers and aliens in this world. We should learn from Daniel's experience that, that the world in which we live is a dangerous place. This world is not our home and it never will be. Yet at the same time, we must recognize that the hostility of the world can never hurt us beyond what the Lord permits. God is sovereign. The Lord is our true judge. His verdict is the one that really counts. Therefore, in the midst of the greatest trials and suffering for those who trust and obey the Lord, we can have peace that will astound the world around us. Would you pray with me? as we enter our time of communion. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this example, this illustration, this story, Daniel, and how it speaks to us, speaks directly to our situation, Lord. And I pray that, that you would continue to speak to our hearts about our situation, about our trust in you. Do we trust in you? And is that trust resulting in obedience? Do we have peace from you? Or do we struggle with anxiety and fear because we really don't, we really don't have that relationship with you that we should have, Father. And I lift us up to you, and I lift that each one of us would grow in our relationship with you, grow in our trust for you and our obedience towards you. In Christ's name, amen. I'm going to ask uh, the ushers that make sure the bread is distributed. We have it on the tables, but for those in the middle, they'll... Hand it out, and I'd re remind everyone that communion is a time for those who trust and obey Christ. If you're not a believer, we're happy that you're here with us today, but we ask that you only observe, allowing the time of communion to speak about Christ's death for you. So as we come to the Lord's table, I want to just point out, we did some of this last week, I'm going to sort of do it again, uh, parallels between Daniel in chapter 6 and Jesus like some parallels and some contrasts. Compare and contrast here. Like Daniel, Jesus was blameless and therefore falsely accused by his enemies. Like Daniel, Jesus was brought before a ruler, Pontius Pilate, who sought unsuccessfully to deliver him from his fate before handing him over to a violent death. Like Daniel, Jesus was condemned to die and his body was placed in a sealed tomb. But that's really where the similarity ends. Because Jesus did not merely suffer the threat of death, he experienced death itself. Although Jesus was innocent, uh, blameless, he suffered the fate of the guilty. Therefore, there, there, there was no angel to comfort him with the presence of God on the cross. On the contrary, he was left utterly alone, abandoned even by his father, suffering the fate that we, the guilty, deserved. His body was left entombed for three days before the angel finally came to roll away the stone. Jesus died for our sins, for our sins, not for his sins. And so death had no ultimate power over him. Therefore, like Daniel in the lion's den, Jesus did not remain in the tomb. God delivered him from the death because he was not guilty. He was blameless before God and man. And when Daniel came forth from the lion's den, he came forth alone. No one else was saved by God's deliverance of Daniel. But when Jesus came forth from the tomb, he came out as, as Savior, as Deliverer. 
by God's grace, all who trust in Christ will, like Christ, be declared blameless, based not on their own righteousness, but on that of Christ. Because of the work of Christ on behalf of his people, the divine judge says, not guilty. You can go free. Now we too, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, can be reconciled to God through the cross of Christ. And that, my friends, is is what we celebrate, what we remember and celebrate here at the Lord's table. In the midst of a world of trials and tribulation, our peace, our deliverance rests in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we take the bread and the cup in his honor and for his glory. In Matthew chapter 26, we read of the first communion. Verse 26, Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. As a remembrance of Christ's broken body given for you, let us partake in the bread together. Jesus continued, and he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. As a remembrance of Christ's shed blood, which provides forgiveness for your sin and mine, let's partake of the cup together. Father God, we thank you as uh, Liam and Brian come up to lead us in our last song, join me in prayer. Father, we thank you words fail me, Father. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for his life, for his death for us, Father, for his resurrection, proving his power over sin and death. Lord, I pray that we would dwell on that, that we would dwell on Christ, that he would be our greatest treasure, our greatest joy, that we would trust him fully. Thank you for giving him, for surrendering him to us, that we might have his righteousness.